word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are the immortal, unchangeable, imperishable God of the universe. And when we reflect on that, when we are confronted with those ideals, we cannot help but recognize our own mortality, our own corruptibility. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would meet with us today, that you would open our ears to hear your word, and that your grace might work in us, and that we might be transformed into those who abound in the work of the Lord. Would you do so through your Spirit? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so first, we're going to look at the plan of the resurrection. And if you step back and look at these verses from kind of a topical view, what you find is you find they actually tell one of the major storylines of scriptures, one of the meta-narratives that kind of holds together the unity of the Bible. The unity of the Bible is expressed in this story of creation, fall, and redemption. This is a meta narrative that is repeated throughout Scripture. And here in 1 Corinthians, what we see is we see that God has created a world. And we know from other places in the Bible that that world is created in such a way that it is pointed towards eternity. And so you have passages like, passages like uh, in Ecclesiastes, where the author tells us that. God has placed immortality and eternity on the hearts of men. And early church fathers and other passages in um, early Jewish writings that aren't a part of our canonical Bible today, but they're, they're helpful for understanding where the church was at the time, they, they expanded on this idea and they taught that God created man for immortality. The world around us in our very existence all that we see is pointed towards eternity. In verse 50, 
Paul reminds us that this creative aim for eternity is intention with our fall. So we have creation, but we also have fall. And so in some of the most direct and straightforward language of the entire chapter, Paul tells us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Paul has been given a look into the eternal plan of God, and he has seen that we were created for the incorruptible, for the eternal kingdom of God. And yet, as a result of this fall, we are corruptible, mortal, flesh and blood. And I think this tension between eternity and mortality explains a lot of our lives. Don't you sometimes feel like you're one who's caught between these two things? I know I feel it in in times of joy and happiness when I want whatever is going on to continue, whether it's, you know, we're spending time with our family, it's been a great day, and I just want to keep going. I want to preserve it forever. Or, you know, sometimes it's already happened here in Bellingham. Uh, For me, if I'm riding down a mountain on my mountain bike and, you know, having a great run, and I just want to go on and on and not stop. I want that to last, and sometimes I want it to last forever. And yet at the same time, you and I are people that cannot help but escape, or or not escape. We can't help but be oppressed by our mortality. And so we find ourselves in situations where maybe we're tempted to want to escape our current situation or maybe even escape reality maybe even escape the pain and the suffering that we felt. We have these dual tensions at work in our lives. We make long-term plans, but we're confronted with fears that we might die or get hurt tomorrow. Or maybe this, this mix of mortality and immortality is most pressing when, when we spend time with people, and especially when we spend time with loved ones who are not long in this world, and we want nothing else for them to stay longer. And we see the destruction and death that the fall has given us in sin and death. We are a people who suffer the pangs of mortality while we long for the joy and the pleasures of immortality. And those of us in the church aren't the only ones that live this way. One of the most substantial comforts for me, some might call it a proof of Christianity, But a comfort that our faith is true is that when you look across the human existence and you look at every culture and every people group and every nation, almost without exception, you see some form of an afterlife. People long for the afterlife. Even atheists can talk about leaving a legacy. God has created us for eternity, and yet we are caught in mortality. Paul's description here matches my life, and I'm guessing it matches your life and reality, and it can be a comfort for us to be reminded that this, even that tension, is a part of God's plan. And so, uh, that comfort comes not just from knowing that the Lord has set this up, not just from knowing that that's the plan of God, creation, fall, redemption, but even though while naming a problem can be helpful, it can be therapeutic, more so this passage We are comforted because we are told, even here, that the Lord did not leave us in tension because creation didn't end at the fall. We we weren't left to take care of ourselves, but the storyline is creation, fall, and redemption. 
Paul reminds us of this mystery and the wonder of our redemption through resurrection in verses 51 through 55, where mortals become immortal, where people who are perishable become imperishable. He even tells us a little bit of what that experience is going to be like, right? It's going to happen in an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the sound of a trumpet. And it's here that we see the plan of God, the plan of his creation hinges on the resurrection. You see, God's plan and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the tool through which immortality overcomes mortality, through which the imperishable overcomes the perishable, the incorruptible overcomes the corruptible. There has to be some way, when you think of it, to bring these two things to resolution. Or at least there does if there's going to be peace, if there's going to be lasting peace, if there's going to be peace with one another and peace with God. There had to be something to overcome it. All of us who've ever tried on our own to bridge that gap know that that peace doesn't come from ourselves. It doesn't come from our efforts. It doesn't come from what we do. It doesn't even come from the best people we know. That our world was created for glory, but we were left after the fall apart from a rescue from something else. We were left perishable. We were left mortal. And yet somehow, Paul says that the things that are perishable must put on the imperishable. And the things that are mortal must put on immortality. Amazingly enough, Scripture tells us that this is all part of his plan from the beginning. And so in a, what I think is a mystery, you see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible, God promises a resolution. And he says, I'm going to send a rescuer for you, the seed of the woman, and he will crush the head of evil. So God promises that there's going to be a resolution to this conflict. And the Old Testament is rife with other examples, foretaste of what this redemption and what this resurrection even is going to look like. But I think my favorite example as it relates to our passage today comes from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, this is, uh, there's a part of it that I'm sure is the story that we all read to our kids right before tucking them into bed. And that's leading up to verses 24. And this is what is called, you know, we might call it the litany of curses or the oracles against the enemies of Israel. And what, what Isaiah does is he goes through all of the enemies, the who's who of who, anybody that's ever done anything wrong to Israel. And he just tells them about these plagues and curses and all this bad stuff that's going to happen to all these. And he names them like it's going to happen to Cush. It's going to happen to Egypt. It's going to happen to Babylon. All of the enemies are going to come under this desolation. You know, the, the normal bedtime reading stuff. And then in chapter 24, even better, this, this is where you should, this is for the pro-parents. What he does, he says, oh, by the way, it's not just the people who are enemies of God. It's going to happen to the entire earth. So listen to this. In chapter 24, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. The earth will be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. And the chapter goes on to explain what that's going to be like. And there's going to be languishing. And there's going to be defilement. And its inhabitants have transgressed the laws. And therefore, a curse devours the earth. And the inhabitants suffer. And cities are wasted. And houses are broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. This, even this, 
It's amazing to think about is part of the plan of God. The pain and the suffering that we see there, the pain and the suffering that we see in our world around us is no surprise to the God who has created and ordered all things. Now, he is in no way the author of this evil. But even, even the same, our trials and our suffering are not news to him. And it's a good thing they're not news to him. It's a good thing for us because we can look even in Isaiah and see that it doesn't always stay that way. God had a plan from the beginning. And so we're, we're going to see that plan in a minute of how God brings redemption even through Isaiah. But before we do, I want to make two comments about this description of suffering and pain from Isaiah. And one, as a side note in a bit for, for our passage today, but something I find so fascinating and helpful for us is that the description of Isaiah doesn't fit the common description that I typically think of and that maybe some of you think of as well when I think of what judgment from the Lord looks like. You see, when I think of judgment for the Lord, I think of it in two ways. One is personally and individually, and one is I'm often tempted to think of it in just spiritual sense. And neither of those descriptors fit what God is talking about in Isaiah. The Bible tells us, and as we just read, that judgment involves more than our spiritual selves. We're not just spirits trapped in a mortal body. We are embodied human beings. And no matter how prone we are to forget it, we have a physical existence, and that is part of God's creation. And so our physical nature is part of it, but also it's not just individual. The world around us is also part of this plan in creation and fall and redemption. The world is languishing and suffering because of the fall of sin, but the world is going to be redeemed. And so let's look further into Isaiah and hear about this redemption. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 25, I believe, Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. This has always been the plan. The Lord has always had a plan for redemption and resurrection and for swallowing up death, for swallowing up the pain and the suffering that we see in our world. And he goes on, verse 19. He's talking about the resurrection, talking about the redemption that the Lord is bringing and swallowing up death. And he says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Doesn't this remind you of, of what Paul's talking about? Paul's words are similar, right? In verses 54 and 55, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The plan of redemption is the plan of resurrection. 
Through resurrection, death loses its victory and the fallen, corruptible creature, creation, becomes reconciled to the immortal, eternal God of the universe. And before we move on to our next point and talk about the purpose, it's worth repeating that even just knowing this brings comfort. Just knowing that there is a God and you are not outside of his plan, even in your suffering, brings comfort. I think of the times when, when I'm faced with trial or faced with suffering. I think sometimes my reaction is one of, oh, why me? Why is this so hard? Why, why is this happening to me? My reaction is to, to lash out against it. Or we can see the suffering of friends and family and complain, even the Lord, why does this have to happen to them? And in doing so, we're not, we're not being unfaithful necessarily. The, psalmists are, the psalms are filled with people who take their laments to the Lord and they don't know why this is happening. And though the resurrection and this passage doesn't answer all of our questions, it doesn't always tell us why things are happening, it can help mitigate the pain we experience knowing that you are part of a bigger plan and that your, your mortality, your pain, and even your death is not outside of God's blueprint for your life. I pray that we would all be comforted by that this morning. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul understood this plan. He knew the storyline of creation, fall, and redemption. And he knew that the conflict between mortality and immortality, between the perishable and imperishable, had to be bridged. And he knew that even our death became a part of this plan. Because Paul was also given insight into the purpose behind that plan. So that's where we're going to turn now, is to look at the purpose of the plan. And we're going to do so in two ways. And we're going to look at it from the relationship between God and man. There was a purpose there, the, what you might call the vertical relationship. And there was a, a purpose that's part of the horizontal relationship, and that's between us and one another and how we live. So first, we're going to look at the vertical relationship, the purpose of the resurrection as it relates to God and man. And we've already hinted at this aspect. Paul's already told us, but the resurrection is essentially God's vehicle for redemption. It is God's chosen instrument through which Jesus Christ conquers. You could say that the resurrection is like, like the bus that brings the redemption. It's not the driver of the bus. Jesus is driving the bus. But resurrection is the bus that he comes on and he makes it happen. He bridges that gap. Through the resurrection, Christ has overcome the last enemy and death is swallowed up in victory. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. And because of the resurrection, all that tension is done away with. God's people need not worry about their ultimate outcome. The final word has been spoken. The final enemy has been defeated. And we can have hope in knowing that the battle is won. Again, I hope this is an encouragement to you. Not only are you part of the plan, but that plan is secure. Through the death and resurrection of our Lord, the final word has been spoken. There is nothing in death and suffering that we experience that can do to alter that plan either. You can't change the outcome of that plan. Be encouraged. The suffering that you experience, not only are you completely unable to change the outcome of that plan, the suffering that you experience is also unable 
to change that outcome. That is secure. That relationship between God and his people is secured. And secondly, the resurrection affects how we live amongst each other. And this is what I think is probably one of the most surprising aspects of this passage. Because at this point, if you and I were writing the letter, you know, what would we say? What would we say to the church to encourage them about Christ having a secured victory in the resurrection? Well, it's basically everything that I've said up to this point, right? My encouragement to you has been hope and wait, right? There's a future resurrection where we will literally rise from the grave and be with Jesus. But that's not where Paul goes in this letter. He doesn't go and point us to the future reality. Paul sits and says, no, brothers and sisters, this is not just a future reality. This is here and now. And because of the resurrection, we can have peace with one another. We see this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The resurrection isn't just about something that takes place in the future. It affects what we do now. It affects whether or not we can be steadfast, whether or not we can endure, whether or not we can bear with our lives the difficulties that we face. We can because the labor that we do now is not in vain. Through the resurrection, God provides an avenue for the present people of God to live faithful lives. So knowing that our future is secure... And knowing that we are caught up in the plan of God, we are invited to live and work in his kingdom now. And just as Christ's kingdom began, it has already begun, but it will one day come to a completion, so we are invited to work now, knowing that our work now matters. It's not in vain. The work that we do for one another, the struggle, we don't do it perfectly. We always don't do it right Sometimes not only do we do it right, we intentionally do it wrong, but the Lord continues to work through his spirit, through us, and he takes that and he buries it into the ground. And it is raised to new life, real and true new goodness and new life here on earth. So because of the resurrection, we can find both meaning and motivation of our life, in our life, in our work, The resurrection is the very avenue by which Christians put on the new self. We work, and it's not perfect, but we know that we will find that one day the Lord has taken that work and used it for his good. And we are also given the ability to be steadfast and immovable, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Perhaps those circumstances are personal. Maybe it's an overwhelming burden of debt. Maybe... There's sickness, maybe there's pain in your life, maybe it's relational, maybe there's um, mental anguishes that you're facing, it can be depression, it can be anxiety, maybe it's physical of cancer. These are just a few of the things that we face that are real, and they are a death in our lives. They are a true death in our lives, and they are hard, and it is hard for us to come to terms with them. But the hope that this passage gives you is that the Lord will one day, he will crucify all of those to his son and he will rise up out of that death in you, new life and new hope and new glory in his name.
It's true that every earthly trial we face is preparing us for that eternity of glory. And it may be that we end up like Job, Job who suffered more than than I could ever imagine. Job lost all of his children in the same day. He lost all of his wealth in the same day. And then he lost all of his health. And then he had three friends come, and they did a good job of being friends. And then they essentially, after a couple of days, turned to him and said, yeah, it's probably your fault. It's something you did. And yet, Job was never told why that happened. Job was restored. The Lord restored Job, even earthly. But he's never told why. So we might, we might be in that situation in our life. But I want you to hear the words of Paul that that is not outside of the plan of God. And there is hope for your future, and that hope gives you the ability to persevere and be steadfast now. And also along with that, we might end up getting to be a little more like Paul, which Paul saw, he got to see a little more than Job did. And Paul saw and he knew that our afflictions, everything we face, are but a momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for us. And that is what we find in the resurrection. So if you're here as a visitor this morning, if you're someone that is maybe checking out the Christian faith or maybe just reconsidering your own Christian faith, I offer this as purpose and hope to you. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that you can find purpose even in the seeming meaninglessness of suffering in your life through Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can take your pain and take your suffering and bury them in the ground and give them new life. And he can do it because he's already done it. He is already won. The victory is complete in him. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so for all those who have been united to Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit, who will certainly be united to him in a resurrection like his, receive these words of comfort from Paul, especially in the midst of your current suffering, in the midst of any death around you. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Would you pray with me?